Welcome to the Four Preaching Channel. Last week we had a chance to explore Jesus' escape to Egypt. As we saw, the angel warn Joseph and his family that they need to leave because something bad was coming, that Herod was seeking to destroy the child. Uh, we're able to see in some ways how Jesus' life sort of reflected the history and the life of the nation of Israel up until this point, of the people of God. Now, tonight we're going to get another peek at just how Jesus' life kind of aligned with the history of Israel. Um, there really are three aspects when I'm teaching, when I'm preaching, when I'm approaching any piece of scripture, there are really three things that I want to look for and that I really want to be able to convey well. And that's that, what does the scripture tell us about us? What does the scripture tell us about God? And with those two facts in mind, how then should we live? So all of my sermons, all of my approach in some way, shape or form kind of revolves around these three things. They're not always going to be so obvious or as straightforward, but it kind of always revolves around these sort of three things. And so tonight, I really want us to look at those three concepts here as we look at Matthew 2, 16 through 18. But before we get too far into it, let's go ahead and read Matthew 2, 16 through 18 and kind of set the stage for what we're going to be studying. Now, Matthew 2, 16 through 18 says this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, we're going to break this down just a little bit further, right? And I really want us to kind of first separate out verse 16 from the other two. Now, first, I want us to kind of investigate what does this passage tell us about us? Now, you'll notice that none of us are in this passage, but in a way we are. Uh, we have a tendency when we read the Bible to approach it looking to see how we line up, how we match up with the hero, right? We like to see how we're like David, how we're like Daniel, how we're like Abraham, how we're like Noah. But I am no King David, and you, regardless of what your name may be, are no King David. And in our passage today, there's only one person really to inspect. His name is Herod. Now, he's not a great guy. Let's reread verse 16, though just kind of get a quick glimpse of what he's all about in this passage. Verse 16 says this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, before you just stop and say, wow, what an absolutely garbage human being, though I would not argue that is inaccurate in any way, shape, or form for Herod, I want to be clear that Herod has been through kind of a lot, right? Now, it is a dog-eat-dog -dog world at this particular point in time. Herod has been vying and fighting for control constantly. In fact, he's only in this position because another famous individual by the name of Mark Antony actually brought Herod to Rome and pitched the idea of him being this ruler over Jerusalem and over the Jews. In fact, they would actually give him a pet name, King of the Jews, as we, you probably heard in my sermon from the earlier part, the first 12 verses of chapter, two, of chapter 2. Now, after Herod becomes king, 
over the Jews, becomes king of the Jews, if you will, he's effectively ruling over a people that hate him because he is not a full-blooded Jew. Now, none of this, I want to be clear, none of this, none of his hardships, none of the difficulties in his life make slaughtering a bunch of kids okay. Right? I, I want to put this in perspective, though. Right? So I want us to kind of move back and look at a couple of Old Testament references. I want us to try to envision just this murder that, that Herod has perpetrated. I want us to put it in the proper context, in the proper perspective. So first I want us to go back to Genesis. If we look at verses or Genesis chapters 6 through 8, you may be familiar with the account of Noah's Ark and the Flood. Now, in this account, you know that Noah, this grandfatherly guy with his giant boat filled with animals, you know, has this pleasure cruise for some short period of time in our minds, and then, you know, lands on a mountain, everything is cool. Well, the story doesn't go like that, obviously. We know that, you know, he's in this ark for close to a year, right? Like 200 days, 200 plus days. It's probably not super great. Um, but ignoring Noah completely, right? I already said we have a tendency to look at ourselves like the Noah in the story. Ignore Noah completely for a moment and stop and think about everyone else in the world during Noah's time. I mean, I'm not a weatherman or a scientist who knows a ton about how rain falls and accumulates and all that, but I mean, I've, I've been around and I've seen the stories with hurricanes coming in and I've, I've heard about how the water rushes in, how after a couple of days of rain, you've got, you know, one-story houses underwater, people on their roofs, helicopters having to swoop in. But imagine in this point in time, right? Imagine that there are people here, after a couple of days of rain, they've had to relocate their whole all their belongings. They've moved down to hills. But forget even about that. Fast forward to day 7, maybe day 10, right? Maybe day 20, because it's in, in Genesis 6, well, in Genesis 7, it tells us that it rains for 40 days before it stops. So you can imagine day 30, right? Maybe day 38. Let's go to day 38, right? Because Genesis 7 tells us that 15 cubits is how high above the tallest mountain the water got. So go to day 38. On day 38, I imagine that there is a core group of people who are terrified, who have no idea what's happening who are standing on top of a mountain, chest deep in water, the rain is still falling, and they are wondering what happens next. And they're about to die. And all of the rest of humanity has died at this point. God wiped out everyone in the earth at that time. Now, I have no idea how many baby boys Herod killed. There's some debate over the topic. Uh, many scholars tell us that it's probably just a couple of dozen boys who would have been in Bethlehem and the immediately surrounding regions because Bethlehem was a small town. And this would have been, you know, two years after the census was had to be taken. So people would have returned back to their places. But regardless of the fact, here in Genesis 7, and well, Genesis 6 through 8, God has killed everyone except for eight people on a ship, a floating zoo. But let's not just look at that story. Let's, let's look forward even farther. Let's go to the Babylonian exile. Now it's, it's, cataloged in various different places in the Old Testament. And it's in fact 
the reference that Matthew is making here as he's talking about Rachel weeping. It, it, this isn't a scene of Rachel actually weeping, but it's a quote from Jeremiah where he's, he's using Rachel as this vivid picture because right, Rachel has these just these two young kids um, earlier on. And so, we, you know, there's this picture of this, this woman who loves their children and they're, they're being carried off into exile. Jeremiah is describing the Israelites as they're, they're being carried off in exile. Their, their men and their fighting men have been killed. Now their youths and their royalty are being carted off to Babylon to become brand new Babylonian um, people. Right? The Israelites were removed from their homes in the exile. In effect, at least that's what the Babylonians saw, to, to wipe out Israel. That was their goal, was to eradicate it. Now, this is another instance where God had a hand in it, right? He tells them continuously, you must turn back to me. And if you don't turn back to me, eventually I will give you over. And eventually he does give them over. Here we see the exile into Babylon that God allows to take place. And the Israelites are effectively wiped out. So here we've seen now two instances where God has entered into the scene and has committed you know he's he's killed far more people than Herod does at all with that thought in mind why are we so shocked by Herod's actions what makes Herod different here why are we upset with Herod but we're not angry at God in Genesis 6 7 and 8 we're not angry with God in the Babylonian exile What is it about Herod, or what is it about any human being that makes their judgment different from God's? Well, the first and obvious answer is we're not God. God is God. We're not God. Hopefully you all have that. Right? There's a single arbiter of justice. God alone decides what is morally right and what is morally wrong. That is God. He is the arbiter of justice. And if we deviate from his direction, if we choose to pursue our idea of justice in any means that runs perpendicular to God's or contrary to God's, we are attempting to effectively usurp his authority as the moral arbiter of justice. God alone has the right to judge. Now we see this theme throughout the Bible that God alone stands in the place to be able to judge and to be able to cast out judgment, to bring wrath as is necessary, right? In Isaiah, God makes a statement that he alone is God. There is no one else. The heavens are empty besides him. It is not God and a bunch of smaller gods that he must contend with. There is no Vishnu. There is no Buddha. There is no Allah that God must wrestle with to carry out his will. Those are all figments of people's imaginations. God alone stands in heaven. And in his aloneness, he also has another quality. He has holiness, right? And we see the theme of God's ability to judge throughout Romans. But for us to understand God's ability to judge, we also have to understand that God has the right to judge. In order for him to have the right to judge, we need to see his characteristics. And one of those characteristics is, the main characteristic is his holiness. Now, if we go back to Leviticus 19.2, we see that it says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, he will go on to repeat himself over and over again about how he is holy. This is God talking to Moses, who's going to go talk to the Israelites about how they're supposed to carry out this is Levitical law. This is the beginning of laws. God is preparing the Israelites 
to receive the law. He's reminding them that the reason that there is law is because he desires for his people to be holy, just as he is holy. Knowing full well his people are sinful, fallen human beings that lack the basic capability of being holy, but yet God still calls them to be that. But God alone carries the responsibility to judge the world rightly because he is, not only is he holy, he is the only holy one. Now, if we think maybe there's someone else on the earth, maybe maybe there's been some good person or some prophet, let's check that out, right? In Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, these two verses, along with many others, disqualify all of humanity from being considered holy in any capacity. Right? And if we go back to our passage, right, Herod falls into this category. Herod is not righteous. Herod does not understand. Herod does not seek God. Herod falls short of glory. His murders, his attacks on humanity are an outworking of the sin in his own life. Romans 6.20 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Right? Herod was not, the one who, was not one who feared God. Now, this is abundantly clear by his actions. Someone who fears God does not go out and say, Give me the smallest image bearers of God and let's kill them. Right? Herod's actions prove he does not fear God, prove that he does not care. And as such, in his lack of fear of God, in his lack of obedience to God, his lack of belief in God, because he obviously does not believe that God is who he says he is or does what he says he'll do, because he's literally just finished talking to wise men who said, hey, we've seen the new king coming, the Messiah. And Herod, talking to the Pharisees, would have had every opportunity to know what kind of a person this would be. Now, as such, he's living effectively in slavery to sin. Now, it's not my place to judge someone else's heart, right? I don't decide if someone else is a sinner. Well, everyone's a sinner. I don't get, it's not my place to decide if someone else is saved, if someone else has a right relationship with God. But in Matthew 7, Jesus does point out, talking about false teachers, that we can see who belongs to Christ by their actions. We can see, we can tell a tree by its fruit in the same way we can tell a person by his actions and how he works, how he walks. Now, as we look at Herod, right, we see it, it does not appear that he belongs to God. I would, it would be a tough sell to tell me that he does. And as we look at this, we look at this idea of slavery to sin, we need to go to Romans 6, right? Now, Romans 6 talks quite a bit about slavery of our wills to a single master. Either we are slaves to sin prior to our salvation and regeneration by the Holy Spirit, or we are slaves to God. Now, if we are slaves to God, we are God's slaves. If we are slaves to sin, it would almost be accurate to say we are simply free of being slaves of God. Because there are only two options. There's only two masters that we can serve. There's no other options. You can't be free from both. You're either in slavery to God, in slavery to righteousness, or you are free from that slavery. Free, right? As, as Romans 6.20 said, free in regard to righteousness. That's the distinction here, right? When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. You're either uh, a sinner who is trapped in their sin and is unable to serve God rightly, or you are 
you have believed God and you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you are now a slave to God and able to serve him rightly. Right, prior to God moving in our hearts, we're incapable of pursuing him rightly. Right, as Romans 6 might say, we're free in regard to righteousness. A good way to, to think about this is to think about food allergies, right? Now, my son is allergic to peanuts and getting more allergic, if that's possible. And if when I go to the store and I buy a candy bar for him and I see on the label, peanut free, what do I expect? I expect there are zero peanuts. I don't expect that it's the least number of peanuts you can have in a candy bar. I expect there to be no peanuts. Because peanut-free means that there is no peanuts. In the same way, free in regard to righteousness means we were not able to pursue righteousness. We were lacking in the righteousness department, if you will. But now, with all this talk about Herod's slavery to sin, you might wonder, does this mean that somehow Herod isn't responsible for his actions? If he's a slave to sin and can't choose to serve God, can't choose to be morally right, then... Is he somehow going to get off the hook for murdering a bunch of kids? Well, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, implying that every single random and spontaneous thing that happens on the earth still falls under the purview of God's sovereignty and God's control. However, we must realize that our actions are our responsibilities. While God dictates how the world works, we are still required to give an account for our own actions. Romans 14, 10 through 12 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now I want to be clear. This does not only apply to Herod. Herod does not get Scott get off scot-free for murdering children, but neither do you get off scot-free for your own sins. There is a price that must be paid. Sin has consequences, as we've mentioned previously. God is who he says he is, and he does what he says he'll do, including judging the wickedness of man. Now, all of this, all of this bad stuff that happened, all of these actions that Herod carried out, these were to continue to align Jesus' life with the trials and troubles of the nation of Israel. God did not force Herod to do these things. You might say he simply removed his hand. He simply stepped back and allowed the nature of, of Herod, his innate and inescapable desire to serve his master, sin, as Romans 6 says. His innate desire to serve his master simply broke, not broke free. God steps back a little and allows it to run more amok than it already has. Arguably, you could really say that every time someone who is not saved goes about and does good things, it's simply because God is keeping their sin nature in check for them. He is being merciful and gracious. Romans 5 talks about how, not Romans 5, sorry, Romans 2 talks about how the beginning of the chapter talks about how God's kindness is meant to bring us to repentance. Here, right, Herod, struggling with all this, he is, you know, he is, he's dealing with it. He's, he's, God has stepped back and now Herod is running amok. He sees it as an opportunity to kill someone that might take over his throne. And he, he just goes with it. He begins to attack.
Much like Israel was cast into Babylon, Jesus here, through Herod's actions, is forced to flee to Egypt to seek refuge from one who is seeking to kill him. Much like Israel and their youths and their royalty was seeking shelter in Babylon, effectively, as they're being carried away so as not to be fully destroyed. The Israelites didn't have room to say that God was unaware of what they went through. Jesus here is living and living proof that this is the life that Israel carried out and that this is the life Jesus carries out. God was not only present as Israel experienced all these things, but here Jesus is reliving some of them in order to be there and to show how he has suffered and how he has experienced what Israel has gone through. Not because in some way it is necessary. Jesus had to have experienced exactly the same things Israel did, but because he cares about Israel, he loves Israel, and he is giving them, he's presenting them with evidence, with an opportunity to see who he really is and to see how he cares for them. Now, knowing that man, right, we talked about Herod and how he is, he's sinful, wholly sinful, or the, the theological term, he's totally depraved, and that God is completely righteous and completely holy, we must ask ourselves, how does that affect us, right? We've seen God, we've seen man, we've seen who they are, we've seen who we are. We are these sin-ridden meat bags running around just trying to destroy ourselves and each other, and it's only by God's good grace that he saves us and restrains us. At the same time, we've seen how God is this holy and perfect judge who does not, does, we have done nothing to earn mercy, and yet he has still given it. And yet he still must orchestrate these events. He still must be in control, even as these bad things happen. But how does, how do we take this knowledge, how do we apply it to our own lives? Because it's easy to look at an event like this and say, well, that sucks. I hate that kids were killed, right? I, when I first started studying this, I, I really grappled with the fact that God would allow for children to be killed. Because I really, I've spent a lot of time kind of wrestling with this idea of age of accountability. Now, if any of those of you who know me, know that this is something I've struggled with and wrestled with for quite some time. And I've, I've recently gained quite a bit more clarity, especially with this study, thankfully. Um, because, right, the, the age of accountability, I think Ligon Duncan says it best. See, he wrote an article for a, a Reformed Theological Seminary, a very respected uh, seminary, and, he, and Ligon is an excellent pastor. Um, but he said this, he said, the age of accountability is conception. At the moment we are conceived, our sin makes us culpable. Our sin brings God's wrath on us. We are culpable, we are accountable for our sin from birth, from, from conception, from the moment we're conceived. Because right in Psalms, David says, that my, in sin my mother conceived me. However, it is this idea of an age of uh, awareness and an age of understanding. Now, I don't know who God saves. I don't know if there is how God chooses which children have come to the right place. And frankly, I don't know if I want to know. I, I trust that God has this figured out. And so I wrestled with this with this passage because the idea that these kids, prior to this study, I, I wasn't sure. Maybe Maybe children are accountable and culpable from the beginning. And thankfully, I've, I've been convinced maybe at this point that that there is a way in which God rescues those who are not able to understand what they're doing. And so 
when we see events like this, when we see these awful things happening, right? How do we approach this topic? How do we approach the topic of God's holiness as true disciples? If he lets stuff like this happen. But let me ask you a question. Do we lightly handle holy things? Do we lightly handle God? Now, maybe it's a silly question for you. Maybe you've been in church your whole life and you're, you're like, you know, Sunday school answer, obviously not because, you know, we're supposed to fear God and, you know, obviously we don't take God lightly or anything like that. But do you? Does, do you worry what God thinks? Does that worry creep into your mind as you make mundane decisions? Does your absence from his house for prolonged periods of time make you anxious or uncomfortable? Right? We, do, we as, do we as disciples, do we as Christians walk around with this idea that we have this small God, this, this little God? Because that is not the God presents here. This is a holy and perfect and just God. And if we were to really truly grasp this idea of a holy God, would we be able to act the way we do now? Would we be able to get as angry at other people if we thought of how our sinfulness puts us in the path of the wrath of a holy and perfect God? Would we be able to, would we struggle with depression as much as we do if we spent all of our time, you know, thinking and wondering and just in awe of the fact that God chose you? If you are a true disciple, God chose you to be his disciple. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't your choice to do that. God chose you. It says that all over the Bible, Romans 8 and 9, I'm sure we'll get there at some point in this series, but God chose you. And do we struggle with depression? Because we've, we have such a small God that when we look at our lives and see where we have failed or where we have succeeded, we, all we can think and look and see is how we have failed or we have succeeded rather than seeing how it has been God's grand and perfect and wonderful plan for us to be exactly where we were in exactly the situation. If we thought like that, would we worry about the small things? Would we be concerned with our own struggles? Would we be upset with this idea that maybe things didn't pan out the way that we thought that they would? Do we have a little God? Is our God holy? Do we treat him like he's holy? Or do we treat him like a genie? And we don't need him, we set him aside. And, you know, I've got this one. You better let me handle it, God. Now, we most certainly serve a loving and merciful God. But like a lion who is, I'm sure, soft and cuddly. I just want to believe that about lions. Right? He is capable of incalculable destruction. Right? Do you remember the flood? When, Jesus, when God wipes out the entire earth, can you imagine the cold and terrified people standing on that mountain, chest deep in water, weeping as rain continues to fall, knowing that they are about to perish, staring into the face of a holy and just God? Romans 6, 12-14 reminds us of our responsibility before him. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no more dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. In a nutshell, Paul is saying, if sin is not your king anymore, stop serving it like it is. Serve 
God. Serve your real king. But as we conclude, let's come back to Matthew. Let's look at verses 17 and 18 just briefly. Then was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentations. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is a memory. This is a remembrance. God's punishment on Israel. God's punishment on Israel. This was his people. He specifically chose these people. Much like if you're a true disciple, he chose you. There are still consequences for our sin. Israel wrestled with this idea that they served a holy God. They would struggle with serving other gods, whether that God was football, good clothes, Baal, Asheroth. They served other gods. And the worst part was, as you'll see as you read through the Minor Prophets, the worst offense of all was that in the midst of worshiping all these other gods, Israel still worshiped the true God and thought they were okay. It wasn't enough that they worshiped the false gods, but they thought that they could just continue worshiping the true God anyway. So look at your own life. Are you serving other gods alongside God? Because God did not ask for a part of your heart. Yes, for all of it. As true disciples, that is the only thing that we have to give. And we are called to give all of it. As I've said in many other videos, if you want to understand and experience what it looks like to be a true disciple, you need to watch more than just this video and this mug on your YouTube screen or television or wherever you're watching it. You need to find and get plugged into a local church. Now, I do this because I have watched countless preachers get onto a stage with lights banged up jeans and a big crowd and I've watched them absolutely slaughter God's word and I can't take it anymore that's why I'm up here preaching but if you are out there watching you need to be just as zealous to be in the church it is so important for us to be a part of God's people in his local extension of his body so with that in mind if you are not a true disciple if you don't know what it means to be a christian if you don't know what it means to be a true disciple you need to find a pastor you need to find a christian you need to find a church where you can get that information first that is the most important information that you can get and in the description of this video there will be a link to a church directory uh, it is a directory of churches that believe the same as i do and any one of those churches should be able to provide you with resources and time to be able to explain all of this. Now, if you're in the other camp and you are a true disciple, you are a Christian and you understand what's going on, maybe you've looked across your life and you've said, you know, I am serving other gods. How do I, how do I get that squared away? Or maybe you've looked across and you've said, my God is rather small, right? Maybe you get down on your knees and pray and the only things you find yourself praying for are a couple of sick people, maybe a pregnant lady, maybe a politician here and there. You know, maybe you have a village God as one, one theologian once put it. The only way that you're going to be able to fix that is by being in God's word. You can't learn to serve God right. I, I will go so far as to say that it's impossible 
to have a right relationship and a right service to God if you don't know who he is. Because he is absolutely awesome, but also absolutely terrifying, right? I think C.S. Lewis said it best. I'm going to butcher this quote so bad. So hopefully I'll, when I'm watching this later and, you know, put all where this way, when I put up the little text box here, I'll put the real quote, but C.S. Lewis talks about Aslan, right? He talks, someone asks, is, is Aslan safe? He says, oh, no, 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 Aslan is not safe. He's a lion. In the same way, God is not safe. He does call us to give everything. He is not a safe God. So, until next time, I'm Sam. This is for the gospel, for God's glory, for preaching.